I realized too, I was like, oh, I forgot to talk more about the seventies comparison because, um, you know, when I'm talking about like sort of what happened after the sixties and getting into the seventies, cause I even mentioned like Jimmy Carter's Malay speech that what you see during the seventies was a lot of withdrawal. Like, you know, it's interesting. My uncle was a hippie, you know, in the sixties and very political. He claims that he left high school um, because he was angry about the discrimination there and in rural Illinois. And he moved to, to Boulder, Colorado, just like a lot of his generation in the seventies. And they sort of withdrew very new age. You know, they got into new age, like uh, personal health, what you could see, you know, like enlightened consumerism. Yeah. And you had all these uh, leftists that uh, sort of withdraw and form their own like communes, their own little separate societies the whole earth catalog, all of that stuff was about liberals trying to build a world outside of politics. And so I think that that's where a lot of the left energy is, is going these days. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hokuli. Uh, the other boys, George and Phil, are away today. Uh, but I'm very happy to be joined by Ryan Zikraf, who's a freelance journalist. Uh, he writes for Jacobin and Compact, and is also a democracy reporter for a local nonprofit in Atlanta. And we're here to talk about an intriguing new piece that he has out in Compact magazine. It came out on the 21st of September. It's called America's New Politics of Nothing. Nothing's going on. Uh, how, how's it going, Ryan? Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. Uh, I will say that I did not title that piece, uh, by the way. Uh, this, that happens a lot. So uh, I'm not sure it's the politics of nothing. It's something, but I think it's changed. It's it's less than the something that it was without being quite nothing, right? Yeah. I guess that's it. America's so- politics of something would, would not get a lot of eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like kind of deliberately unspecific. It actually sounds kind of mysterious. It's like, oh, yeah. okay, I want to maybe, maybe we would get eyeballs. I want to know what maybe. that something is. Um, let's let's put some uh, meat on these um, very slender bones. What's the basic argument of of your piece? You're basically saying it's so over. Yes, um, I talk about how um, Anton. Uh, you know, I've never actually said his name. That's how online I am. Jaeger. Yeah. Jaeger. Okay. Um, He wrote this piece. uh, I saw it first in Jacobin and I think it was in the print edition in early 2021 or 22. And um, he wrote about a little bit elsewhere. And basically he talks about this period. um, I don't think he says a specific time period, but I kind of peg it towards the election of Trump or maybe even a little bit before that that campaign leading up to to, uh, Trump's election where everybody, everything was politics, 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 national politics was, was everything, everywhere. It was in your water. Um, And everybody became obsessed with it. We started 
um, watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox News and started reading all our news on social media. And it even, you know, spilled out into the physical world. Well, all of a sudden we had yard signs announcing our uh, political allegiances. Um, it was this very frantic, very um, kind of breathless time where we just could not get enough of politics. And basically what I say is that a little bit after the invasion of, of the Ukraine by Russia, in February 2022 was sort of the last breath of that era. And now we're starting to enter something possibly new. Yeah, so I mean, I guess regular listeners of this podcast will already have gathered why this article has intrigued me um, and to a certain extent kind of pushed uh, some of my buttons. I mean, we've discussed uh, hyperpolitics on this podcast with with friend of the pod, Anton uh, Jaeger, before. Um, I've written a little bit about it as well, um, in kind of my own terms about the way that, you know, the 2010s was the decade of anti-politics, of this kind of angry rejection of the political establishment. And now we've moved on to something else, to a kind of boundless politics, which is everywhere and nowhere at once, and which um, I think, in, in my view, increasingly takes the form of culture wars. I'm going to maybe come on to exploring a little bit of that. Um, but in your article, um, just to kind of deal with a lot of a little bit more of the descriptive side of things, um, you kind of go through the ways in which, um, you know, hyper politics about this moment since 2016, something that we call the end of the end of history, um, that it, it was characterized by loads of protests, um, loads of sharing news and whatever, and how there's some, for you, some key indices of how that's no longer the case or somehow ebbing away. So maybe talk us through some of those. Well, I looked at um, a lot of different aspects of life that seem to really be animated by hyperpolitics. Um, for instance, one stat that I found that was pretty startling was that um, there were tens of thousands of protests all over uh, the US, especially between 2016 and 2020, those Trump years. And there were millions. I mean, it's hard to imagine now, but um, that first women's march was like the biggest protest uh, in US history, I believe. Um, and there were there were marches, there were protests, it seemed like every other day. We had the science march, you know, we had Tuesdays against Trump. We had um, all sorts of different, you know, you had environmental, you had women's rights, you had abortion, all of these things come together at once. And, and then leading into uh, the George Floyd protests of 2020, which was uh, a brand new uh, thing that got uh, millions of people uh, onto the streets. And um since then, I've looked at uh, some of these, um, well, some of these protests just don't really happen anymore, you know, or, or they're, they're, they're confined to like, we're having a conference, we're having a convention instead. I think something like the Science March and increasingly like the Women's March uh, now has a conference in Milwaukee, I think, um, right before the, the, the uh, Democratic Convention. And so... Um, some of these reoccurring uh, marches um, and protests have a fraction of the people that came out and a lot of the giving to the NGOs. In fact, I work for a news nonprofit and, and that sector is hurting. A lot of people were buying um, news subscriptions, 
but those are going down. Uh, cable mm-hmm. news ratings, especially CNN, is like a third of what it was uh, four years ago. And, you know, there's been a big shakeup there, which is a different story. But um, I, even just walking around, I mean, I, I lived in downtown Atlanta and a couple of years ago, there were just there was a yard signs everywhere I looked, you know, for a while it, it stopped being about Biden and then it became Stacey Abrams. But those are gone. The Ukrainian flags were there for a bit, but now it's now it's nothing. Now it's back to like my student is in the honor roll. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, and then, you know, you see things like this uh, blow up with uh, Ibram Kendi um, and Black Lives Matter, how those um, those organizations got shit tons of money um, in that time, in the time of hyper politics. And then they either blew it or the money dried up. Um, so I just kind of go over some of these uh, big ticket items, I think, that during the age of hyper politics, there was a lot of attention and money on those things. Yeah. No, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, maybe taking these one by one protests, I think, is fascinating because um, it's something that people have tracked kind of the number of protests um, in Britain or across Europe or in the U.S. Um, that actually, even in the period of like the deepest depoliticization, the number of protests were often increasing. Um, and I think partly that's the fact that like the like middle class, young middle class people increasingly turn to, to protest. Um, that's a way of like expressing themselves, expressing their values, etc. Uh, in a way that perhaps like an older generation of the middle class would have been a little bit more kind of sedate and kind of quiet and, you know, the kind of uh, more fitting with the image of this kind of quiescent suburban family life. Um, and also, as a, it testifies to the way that politics has been disconnected from kind of parties and organizations. So it's free floating. So you just turn up on the streets um, and gain media attention or aim to get media attention. And that becomes politics. And, you know, the relationship between media and politics becomes reversed. Politics becomes for media rather than the other way around. Um, and so in that regard, you might say, well, you know, ebbing and flowing of, of the quantity of protests is maybe not so meaningful because it's not an index of politicization. Um, but, but you know, so I would maybe throw that to you, though I guess already to make your counter argument for you, you could say that, you know, well, um, protest declining is, you know, it, maybe protest increases when there's depoliticization, but protest declining, that doesn't sound so good. That doesn't sound so promising in terms of, the degree of engagement in, in politics and the desire to change society. Well, I think that one thing that the protests did was they, they, they galvanized a big uh, portion of the population that then um, didn't necessarily engage with institutions, but what they did was give a lot of money um, to all these nonprofits, um, all these democratic organizations. And so I think that goes hand in hand and to see that the fact that the political donations have gone down 30 million from this point four years ago, um, and then all these NGOs that are hurting, um, I think that is tied into the lack of enthusiasm for politics. And so you're not seeing people on the streets and you're not seeing them uh, you know, respond to the pleading emails from politicians being like, could you please, democracy is online, give me 10 bucks. No, and I think yeah, the political donations thing again. You'd say that sounds bad because I mean the you know Bernie Sanders campaign. One of its most promising aspects was precisely the amount of you know small donations made um, by working class people to this uh, to you know to, to to the campaign. 
on the other hand, you could kind of go, well, you know, there's so little um, seemingly to be gained by through the American two-party system that um, disengagement from that doesn't necessarily need to be um, damning or um, necessarily indicative of the fact that people are caring less and less about politics and are retreating into private life. So it's another one of these. I'm, I, I'm kind of, um, I, you know, I'm totally open to the idea that perhaps this age of hyperpolitics is ending and we can come on to maybe some of the causes for that. But I think at every moment you can say, well, okay, maybe that way of engaging with politics, which wasn't very productive in the first place, I think, as we would we would acknowledge, it's a lot of shouting on social media, sharing articles to prove your point about how Trump is bad or how about Obama is terrible or about blah, 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 um, that, you know, um, leaving that behind isn't necessarily um, particularly damning. It's not. But what is the alternative? What is the thing that is filling up the void of politics? I think that is the question. Yeah, okay. I, I, yeah. I, I do think that there is, there has been some positive developments. And I mentioned in the article about how the union movement in, um, in the U.S., while it may, the numbers, as far as the number of people involved in the, in the union movement is not significantly more. But, you know, just look at what happened with this Hollywood strike. I feel like that had this particular strike happened even, you know, seven, 10 years ago, wouldn't have succeeded to the way it did. I mean, you had the media acting like, uh, uh, you know, they were like protecting the unions. And um, the fact that, you know, you convinced Bill Maher to, uh, to quit breaking the strike was pretty amazing. And I think that's a positive development. But I wonder where else, you know, the, the, the political uh, energy is going. Right. And yeah, maybe maybe political energy is the right term to think about this in because, yeah, the breakdown of the neoliberal order from 2016 onwards, which become very politically marked, does draw in a lot of political energy, not from all of society, um, probably, you know, and I think in the US, it's still probably just like the top 60% of society, perhaps, which is kind of engaged. That's um, maybe a crude way to think about these things. But, um, you know, um, as a sort of ballpark way of, of um, you know, thinking about it. Maybe that makes some sense. Um, and maybe there's a, a point of exhaustion. And I'm wondering whether it's it's that that you think is, you know, if, if there is a decline in political donations, there's a decline in protest, people don't have, uh, you know, Trump or Biden signs up on their, um, on their, in their front yards, then people are kind of disengaging from all this political, um, you know, enthusiasm, redirecting their energies elsewhere. Maybe they feel actually they have fewer energies, with, you know, in, in kind of some total, and they want to kind of withdraw into private life, into other pursuits, into family, into um, nihilistic drug binges, and whatever it might be. Because, I mean, that is also a, that is also a factor. It's something that you mentioned in, in your article. Um, so, I mean, do you think it, what, yeah, how do, you, how do you account for this? Is it the pandemic? Is it exhaustion? Is it something else? Yeah, I think... The pandemic, well, I mean, it's interesting because the peak of like lockdowns, um, that's when the George Floyd moment happened. And and it was a lot of people theorized about what brought so many people onto the streets. And, you know, some people talked about how people were just cooped up and we had this energy that they wanted to get out. But things dragged on and the political response was uneven. And um, I think that 
there was an aspect that online, you know, we were very online during that period. You know, people were shut in and, and still to this day, people aren't out like, like they were. And I think that um, some people have kind of decided to like stay in even not always physically, but, but, but mentally, they're just kind of like in their own little worlds. And um, so I think people are just maybe a little bit more self uh, involved. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think um, especially for people where politics was more of a, I guess, crudely, if we want to talk about virtue signaling and they didn't have a lot personally invested you know, in what was going to happen, probably they're some of the most likely to have disengaged and um, all of a sudden are in. I've, I've, been, I've been reading about how everyone's in run clubs now. New York Times did a big feature <laughs> on run clubs or um, they're uh, soul cycling or, or, guard, or pickleball. Everybody's pickleballing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, people don't know what pickleball is. I think whatever. It doesn't matter. You don't need to. Um, the I, I think one of the things about this is, and I think, you know, when you say virtual signaling, I think there's an important word in that, which is signal, um, which is, you know, a symbol. And I think a lot of the way that the hyper politics has played out, um, or I call it the politics of the Aperon, of kind of this boundlessness, uh, plays out is is precisely through a logic of culture war. And already, I mean, in, in 2019, 2020, I was wondering whether the resurgence of politics, the return of politics, wasn't being just directed into these new reheated culture wars, which different from the culture wars of the 90s and 80s, which were characteristically um, structured by moral concerns, um, you know, like things like abortion, um, in particular about religion, about the family. Uh, now you have culture wars about everything. Um, you have culture wars about stuff which seems really political and could only ever be political, and yet it still takes the logic of culture war. Um, and I wonder if if um, you would see that argument as running counter to yours or kind of alongside it? Because um, you could argue that, um, okay, you don't have a return of politics in, in the sense of a challenge to the establishment. You have culture war instead. Or you could argue along the lines of what I think you're arguing, which is basically like nothing's happening. People are not even people are disengaging even from the culture wars as well. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you about a certain kind of culture war that I experienced personally that I think is an interesting example. Um, in 2020, uh, I had just moved to Alabama. I lived uh, in Mobile, Alabama, and I literally moved on the day of the, the George Floyd protest started. And in Mobile, you know, there was a terrible history of, of racism and discrimination. And they had a Confederate statue in the center of town, sort of the main stretch of town where there's Mardi Gras. And there was a Black Lives Matter movement there that um, was having some success. They were marching and they had had this grassroots movement uh, come up. Well, they were ready to tear down that Confederate statue of Admiral Semmes, who was like a, a, a like a naval uh, Confederate pirate. And they were going to tear down that statue. And then the mayor realized they had a plan. He saw the flyer. And so he, middle of the night, takes it into the museum and it's gone for years. What happened to that movement after that? It basically dissolved. So they had this uh, one goal that was part of a bigger thing. They wanted to reform the police um, 
department, but they, they had this big kind of symbolic goal that they finished that they, they tore down the statue and then the energy just dissipated. And I think that some of what we're seeing is that a lot of the symbolic changes, I think, have satisfied a lot of the people that were sort of really invested in the hyper politics. And they see that, you know, on TV, the commercials, you know, there's more people of color. Um, and yeah, that that statue uh, in the center of town is gone now. So I think that some of that energy just went away, especially since a lot of left populism didn't have a lot of, well, aside from the Bernie movement, there wasn't a lot of specific goals. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's definitely like a feature of the hyper politics where you've got burning on fumes effectively. Uh, a lot of energy needing to be thrown out there because it's just a proliferation of claims which don't have any like embodiment. They don't have, they don't form political parties. They don't form kind of stable organizations, um, more structured movements and things like that. So you just need to keep shouting ever louder. Um, I, observing kind of the US case from afar, um, it seems like there's still a lot of shouting. Uh, <laughs> in fact, kind of ever crazier by the day. And the kind of mutual loathing, I think, that uh, Americans have, um, you know, have for each other nowadays. And, you know, correct me if I'm, uh, if I'm kind of characterizing that uh, incorrectly. But I think and certainly as it gets played out over the media, there's a lot of uh, concern about those type of people. Right. And so society is polarized in a way which doesn't net fall neatly along class lines, but amongst kind of various cultural markers, which obviously have some kind of relationship to um, to occupation and income, but aren't primarily kind of determined by those things. It's all about other types of people. So it's, you know, it's like coastal latte drinkers or whatever, you know, <laughs> there's like any number of kind of cultural symbols that you can pick up on or, you know, pickup truck drivers and they might be kind of rich business owner they might be poor people they you know but they're like a, they're a type of person and everybody city hates, versus suburbs yeah for example and it's like i hate those type of people right and you externalize all social problems in the country onto this domestic enemy um, which is defined by its cultural characteristics and my uh, my feeling my my sense of this um again not being in the u.s so i might be wrong on this but is that that still really persists that people are still hating on that type of person um, who they see as the primary threat to um, a dignified life or to a future for the United States or whatever, however they might characterize their goals. Well, one thing I feel is that um, during the Trump administration and even early in the Biden administration, there was a lot of fight over policies. Now, were they always productive and were they, you know, um, were they always reasonable uh, debates over policy, no, but I feel like what we're seeing um, in the last couple of years is is uh, drifting away from arguing about Biden's policies, and we're focusing on, say, Lo <laughs> Lauren Boebert's theater adventure, or uh, you know who or who isn't drinking Bud Light. Um, a lot of the sort of classic um, culture war fights that we had maybe in the Obama years, but escalated. And, mm. um, yeah, you know, this, uh, what Oliver Anthony took our, is that his name? The, the, the singer, the country singer. Yeah. The I, country singer. Yeah. People talked about him for like weeks and that it was a weird, uh, culture war. 
uh, aspect that actually ended up being as a part of the Republican national debate. And I think, I think one factor is that it looks like we might get Biden and Trump again. And it's sort of the same thing that we had a couple years ago. As far as content goes, it's kind of boring, but these new culture war uh, things bubble up and we people become obsessed with them. We need to feed the beast of social media attention. And so we just grab on to the latest. And uh, so I think people are a little bit tired of, uh, of the Biden-Trump war. Right. And I mean, I, I wonder, you know, I, in my more kind of conspiratorially minded um, moments, I would say that if the best way to manage a populace through the 90s and 2000s was basically to depoliticize matters as much as possible to make sure that the victory of capitalism uh, in the Cold War was, um, you know, was persisted and was guaranteed, uh, was basically, you know, remove as much as from from political contestation as possible, and have polit- and have the media also debate um, senseless, meaningless kind of small things and encourage people to turn towards private concerns, you know, home improvement, um, gardening, um, music, whatever it might be, right? Um, and since, you know, 2016 and these, and you know, a whole decade of challenges uh, to establishment authority, uh, without ever really dethroning the establishment, but they certainly take, took a hit in their, in their, you know, to their authority, what happens is that you have an engaged citizenry who basically can't be told simply like, why don't you just be quiet? You know, don't talk about politics. You need to kind of channel that energy into something which is not threatening to the establishment anymore. And culture war, the new form of culture war of the 2010s and 2020s, seems to me the best way to do it. Um, you basically get any issue, get people to split over it, have each side making in- in- increasingly absurd claims, increasingly inflated rhetoric on both sides, claiming that this is the biggest emergency, this is the biggest threat, everybody needs to rally to this cause, uh, while nothing really of substance is actually being discussed. And it's often of matters that aren't of primary concern to most ordinary citizens. Um, and so you have a lot of shouting going on with nothing really happening, right? Like, um, I think you used a, an, an analogy that Anton uses in one of his articles about, you know, um, pressing as hard as you can on the, on the pedal um, on, with, the, with an empty tank. And it's a little bit like that, you know, the, the, the kind of, it's more like putting the car in neutral and putting on, pressing on the accelerator. You know, it turns really fast, but the car won't move. Um, and it's a little bit like that. I mean, that seems to me, um, at least that's the way I would characterize what's going on um, and, and the way that, but the way the politics looks in the 2020s. I think one thing that looking back, this could be, you know, a column in the future, but I think some people got involved in politics. You know, they start, they joined an organization like DSA or the Proud Boys, what have you. And then they realized that those organizations are full of infighting or a mess. It wasn't like the experience of social media where you just express yourself. There's no commitment people send you hearts and you feel good (laughs) about it. And then you get to go back to watching TV where some of these political organizations are, you know, very difficult. I mean, right now I feel like in general, uh, Americans are having trouble interacting with each other. um, And that's coming out in, in fights and arguments. And so in these political organizations, when the, the emotions are higher yeah, it's exhausting. I know, you know, I, I used to be a DSA member in Chicago and going to those meetings was like exhausting. And I think a lot of people got burned out 
So I think that's sort of an undersung factor in this. I wonder also, you know, in regards to kind of exhaustion, um, whether, you know, the retreat that you sort of discuss, um, how, you know, what, what spaces people basically are, are retreating into if you think that they're not doing um, politics anymore? Because I think the age of, of hyper politics, of the end of the end of history, of all this um, very weird politics, which has uh, emerged, is in one way hugely demanding it's hugely demanding because it's very loud and shouty and always demanding your attention but it's also incredibly undemanding in terms of not requiring any commitment um, certainly not over the long term any serious thought or reading (laughs) or actual kind of discourse and debate at a a higher level Um, or really of kind of active kind of engagement in a way which um, tries to actually make the wheels turn, you know, make kind of change things in a, in a practical sense. So there's this weird thing of it not being demanding and being incredibly demanding of, of people who participate in it at the same time. And, you know, you come around to the fact that, well, that might be kind of exhausting. And um, so I, I wonder what, yeah, how, how you feel, whether it's people, whether people are just exhausted, basically, and this will be a decade of return to privatism. Well, I think that one thing you see say in a past era, like I, I read a, a biography of Baird Rustin, civil rights movement. And one thing that struck me is that, um, you know, he was working, he was organizing for decades and, and they, they had fights, but what kept them together um, often was they were in churches, they were in unions and they were in these organizations where you, where you kept going, you have, you were committed, you were part of a community and so when you had these fights or you felt exhausted, well, you kept going. And so they were able to, to do this sort of long-term organizing battle, you know, that coalesced in the 60s. Um, but I just feel because we're in an age of hyper-individualism uh, as well, that when we burn out, we just sort of disappear and um, find hobbies uh, fine, you know, we're not returning to church and hearing sermons or engaging with uh, people that might, you know, necessarily uh, kind of keep us going through the struggle. It's just sort of like, well, I'm feeling burnt out. You know, I got to renew my gym membership and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, take a yoga class. Yeah, no, that I think that's right. Um, that sort of um, withdrawal um can be i think it's only it's the only kind of solution for taking a breather because the engagement of politics doesn't involve any sort of collective support and solidarity because i think you know being involved in an organization of a kind of of the older sort meant that there was collective support there so that obviously people did get burnt out um and you actually you use the example of the 19 of the late 1960s and that huge wave of politicization followed by the 1970s um but and there was, you know, a lot of people politically burnt out in that era. But in any case, you know, the, the issue is that with actual proper organizations, you might have some mutual support. Whereas um, I think the, you know, 
hypermediatized politics is very individualized, as you say. So there's very little to fall back on when you're when you're a little bit burnt out. Uh, I, I actually happen to think that probably a lot of the talk about a lot of the kind of therapeutic talk is a complement to this because you're constantly shouting and getting angry at everyone and including someone and your you know constant games of one-upmanship um, of with, with people on your support you know ostensibly on your own side that you need things like self-care um, and mutual aid and all these sorts of things um, which themselves become objects of hyper competitiveness as well to show off how um, caring you are for example and I think that's part of the this this machine of of, of exhaustion um, where so what I'm getting at I suppose is that even the mechanisms which ostensibly provide some respite from hyperpolitics are themselves exhausting. Huh. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I, I'm even seeing, so, you know, I, I've been reporting in Atlanta on the Stop Cop City movement, which is really interesting. And I feel like that right now is the last big thing that the left is focused on right now in America. And, um, but I've been reporting on that organization you know, a little bit from the inside and it is super dysfunctional, you know, and what's interesting about them too, is they have tried to create this culture of, of politics, um, amongst them. But what it looks like a lot is a bunch of like young hipsters having karaoke clubs and, and like show choirs. It's very, it's, it's a lot of single adults, um, college-aged single adults that uh, hang out together, and it's um, yeah, it's just it's just sort of like a a their own culture that doesn't really engage with Greater Atlanta in trying to stop this um, police academy from being built. It's very it's very self self involved. It, all their talk about how we're going to help all these people in Atlanta. It's really just a small group of people. Mm. So you also suggest in the article that state and local level politics is where the action is um, because national level politics and certainly international politics is just the object of all sorts of crazy claims making and nothing really happens. Politics is completely separated from policy, but at the local level, policy still matters. Um, but the example that you give there seems to suggest that actually, you know, there's not much policy happening there either in terms of, um, in terms of just very simply like advancing political um, goals. Well, I think that um, that there's a term called nationalization, um, which is important. That the way that uh, our attention went from local matters over the last couple of generations, um, where a lot of us were reading the local newspapers and uh, or watching regional news, and then became more of a national attention, um, especially over the last two or three decades. Um, and the media itself is so national focused. I mean, the New York Times and the Washington Post both were regional newspapers that have transformed into mm -hmm. national sort of democratic newspapers. Um, in my backyard, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is now trying to make itself the New York Times of the South. And But what's interesting is that a lot of Republicans pivoted 
10 years ago, you know, the Koch brothers um, and these groups started funding um, politics on the local and state level, sometimes school boards to, to make actual change. And, and that's been very effective. And, and for a lot of liberals, they have had a hard time adjusting to that. Now they're starting to, and you're starting to see, uh, you know, I was reading about Minnesota recently where uh, Gretchen Whitmer has done a ton of progressive uh, policy changes. And then you have on the other side, you have DeSantis and there, there is a lot happening, but because that uh, local media is dying, people are having trouble actually engaging with that information. Now, some of that does bubble up, but a lot of it just happens and you don't really hear anything about it. No, that, I think that's really interesting. I, we maybe understate how how important media is in this regard. And I know that that sounds like a crazy statement because everyone loves to talk about the media and there's too much talk and concern about the media. Um, and as I was saying before, kind of media becomes the object of politics rather than the other way around. Um, but yet with, with like local politics, I think it's hard to get a sense of exactly what's going on, right? That And what the boundaries are of your locale, because it, it becomes nationalized immediately. Yeah, I mean, um, and right now, um, COVID aid is ending in the States. And um, the 30th, actually, September 30th is when a lot of this billions of dollars of COVID aid ends. And so, so um, a lot of these that's organizations... Aid, that's aids to, that aid that goes to um, people directly, to individuals directly, or to organizations? Where, oh, I'm how, sorry. Uh, mostly education, like, uh, for one thing, uh, there were free school lunches for poor kids during the pandemic that was going away. And, um, also with evictions that has happened recently where they've lifted the eviction restrictions. And so states are having to decide right now what to do about that and whether, you know, to fund some of these programs that people have gotten used to, or just let people uh, starve and go out in the streets. And and what we're seeing a lot of times is um, people are starving and going into the streets and liberals aren't really acting upon that um, proportional to the problem because they're so focused on what Trump is doing or what Kristen Sinema is doing, what the, you know, uh, Kid Rock is doing that they're having trouble organizing on these like local and state issues. Right. I mean, maybe we should talk about Trump. Um, I'm really loath to talk about the U.S. election in any period up other than like up to three months before it happens. Um, I don't want to become part of the problem or at least contribute to it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing this reluctantly. But uh, so much of it seems to be, you know, hinge upon whether Trump will be allowed to run or not run. And I think in either way, that will be scandalous in quotation marks. Um, and in that regard would seem to further the um, degree of, if not politicization of kind of political discussion around the US election and a sense of jeopardy. Um, even if it's maybe not so um, consequential for that many people, there's a sense of jeopardy around, will Trump run, will he not run? If he's prohibited from running, that's huge news. If he is, that's also huge news. So is this not maybe just a lull? Um, you know, this is 2023 towards the later end of it. Once 2024 begins in its election year, the circus starts up again. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think I put a caveat in my piece that, you know, that, that might be true that, um, since we're a little more than a year out that, that, that the engine could, could start running in overdrive again. But I think the example I led with, um, about Trump being arrested was there for a reason because, you know, I went to cover it, uh, the, the day that. Yeah. So, so tell, tell us actually the story actually that you start the piece. Oh, sure. That's good. So, uh, funny enough is, so I covered democracy in Atlanta and I was there to cover the cop city protests. And that day they were protesting a federal building that coincidentally enough was three blocks from, um, where Trump was about to be indicted for this, uh, the election conspiracy of 2020 and the, um, the Fulton County DA announced that he was going to be charged on this RICO, which is basically what they set up for mob bosses. And so in anticipation for the fact that Trump was going to be arrested, you know, and get t- had a mugshot taken, all of this, the Elena authorities were expecting basically January 6th. There were metal gates like around a whole city block that were there to keep out the protesters. There were hundreds of uh, sheriff's deputies that were there to protect it. But there were no Trump supporters out there. And in fact, um, the cops, the Stop Cop City people that I was uh, covering marched down there and they had a little uh, scuff up with the, with the cops. And they, they were the only ones to show up. And so uh, it was a, it was a very a low energy um, fight against the police. In fact, the cops just slowly inched the motorcycle towards them and they went away. But um, the, the, the media just pounced on that and took a bunch of pictures. And in fact, the New York Times put a picture of the cop city protesters there and put it for a story about Trump being indicted. Mm-hmm. It made it look like those people were there to protest. But in fact, they were there for an Atlanta issue. So it was an interesting time where... Um, everybody was expecting this big spectacle and nothing happened. Right. And there you get the kind of spectacle of the tail wagging the dog where the media is trying to conjure up a politics that isn't there. I mean, like, you know, the, the photo editor of the New York Times making a call on that is like the perfect example of that. So it's a, it's a, it's a good story, um, to illustrate what's going on. Uh, my, I kind of getting to wonder, okay, so what comes next then, right? If, if the, if you basically have the media trying to cheerlead the people into action, um, and I put action in quotation marks because no one actually does anything, but into um, you know attention, eyeballs, shouting, sharing articles, screaming on social media, and people are decreasingly interested in that, it remains maybe just the hardcore um, of the you know deeply politic deeply politicized um, who are engaged in this and kind of the people who might have been um, driven to vote for Trump as a vote against the man or against those guys or who thought that Trump was the greatest threat to democracy and were called to action in that regard, um, that if that's all kind of coming to an end um, and that to a certain extent that that this chapter is is ending, if not the full book, um, what comes next? Because We've debated this, you know, listeners will know this quite a lot on this podcast. I take a slight divergent view to George, Phil, maybe a bit in between. But, you know, thinking particularly about the UK, the UK, it seems very much like um, 
back to um, what politics looked like pre-Brexit. Like there was this whole, you know, the Brexit crisis was something that engulfed British politics for, well, since from 2016 until, um, you know, some months or maybe a year ago. And now it all seems to be like, well, you've got this kind of very centrist technocrat who's most likely going to be elected for Labour. And you've got Rishi Sunak who um, does some more popular moves, but only when the left opens up or Labour opens up such a massive own goal, a massive own goal, (laughs) that as well, but um, such an open goal for the Tories to shoot into that they do, um, which is something that's happened recently with um, some of the uh, low tra- low low uh, emission zones and kind of anti car um, measures that labor has brought in, and so the Tories are able to go away. Hey, we, we we defend ordinary man against these bad green initiatives, um, but you know that's about the extent of the populism. You know, I wouldn't even necessarily call it populism. Um, so that seems, at least this would be, I think, George's argument. Um, I should really allow him to speak for himself, but he's not here today. Um, that. That, that it's kind of all over, right? That, that, that there's a kind of resumption to the pre-2016 era of in some way. Um, my take is, is different. I just think that the crisis of legitimacy is so severe and the grounds for economic growth seem weak, stronger in the United States than in Europe, but still um, for a kind of inclusive growth still seem pretty weak and with no political force really seeking to offer that, that the anger and disgruntlement isn't going away um, and that people's lives are too perpetually shaken up um, and dislocated for things to settle back into a kind of end of history sort of rhythm. So that was long-winded, but I, I, I'm i trying to kind of figure out what the picture of the 2020s looks like then. Well, I think there's one way in which both the left or the right uh, conservatives and liberals have embraced a kind of uh, libertarianism um, for the right. It might be more economic, which I guess it's always has been. Um, and the left, um, a libertarianism of like tearing down these institutions, you know, literally these like statues of the past, but also wanting to abolish the police, abolish the family. Um, abolish is the only way of thinking about things. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And then this embrace of like sex work and drugs, you know, uh, I was talking to somebody recently about how, how widespread psychedelics have gotten. Um, I was at a farmer's market on Sunday and somebody was selling weed openly. Um, that is the kind of libertarianism I feel like that, uh, a lot of liberals have embraced and, um, with a right, you don't really, you know, kind of elite culture is dead and there's this sort of embrace of the lowbrow or middlebrow and, you know, more, more culture war stuff, but they're, they're, they're each committed to a different flavor of libertarianism. And I feel like that's going to drive a lot of the momentum. Um, but I do agree with you that, that there's a lot of contestation. And I think that we're starting to see it some, in cities right now with um, like Seattle, there's been a rebellion against, they like basically legalized all drugs in Washington state. And recently there's been a reaction to it because of all the homelessness and the deaths that, and and then in some of these cities where uh, a lot of the migrants have been sent, you know, in New York and Chicago, uh, people are sort of 
reacting pretty strongly to some of these policies, which are affecting a lot of their day-to-day life. And so I, th- I, th- I think we'll start to see that more. But again, because the media is so nationally focused, we, not, we, we just may not be able to see that, except when it happens to New York City, because what happens in New York City, we mm. hear about. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wonder whether that, that sort of libertarianism is um, maybe to be read as a sort of withdrawal as well. Um, you know, I mean, liberals might try to, and I think that generally the modest operandi of American liberals has been to antagonize as much as possible kind of the ordinary American, particularly if they cast them as potentially conservative or even, you know, racist, sexist, whatever, um, by saying, hey, I, I'm selling weed or I think we should do drugs openly, you know, as a way of like, you know, it, it, it seems always done in bad faith, I think, um, because it's never like a genuine statement of belief, but it's done um, for the purposes of antagonizing, you know, the other people who are who are the cause of, of things. So I think, I mean, there's still that kind of culture war um, politicization there, uh, that, that yeah. form of politicization, which is kind of culture war. But go, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that um, I think where some of the energy is, is to be to react to the other side um, and sort of, it's, it's sort of a, a dare to then, then respond to the liberals. I guess, I guess both sides are trying to trigger each other, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And what's interesting, even in this period that I'm talking about the last couple of years, maybe year and a half, for whatever reason, the drag performer has become like this symbol of liberal virtue. And the, that fact, the fact that you any everywhere you go these days in cities, you'll see drag shows. I mean, in a way that they, they that d- didn't happen even four years ago. I think that says a lot about this uh, political moment. Now, I, I guess say the unseriousness of it, but um, yeah, it, it's it's sort of then 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 uh, conservatives will t- uh, respond to that and say. Uh, yeah, they're all they're all demons, they're all devil worshiping uh, perverts, and so we're going to embrace being a trad family and then moving to Utah. So I think there's a way in which the, a lot of the energy is these two uh, cultural sides locked into battle with each other, and it's getting increasingly ridiculous. Yeah, no, I think that that's certainly like kind of self perpetuating. I guess I wonder where the challenge to the establishment. Um, actually comes from because obviously none of this um, would qualify as um, populism in the way that we've kind of come to understand it in the 2010s at least I think the connection between that and traditional populism of like the late 19th century um, is is kind of tenuous but you know in, in any case the kind of rejection of the political establishment rejection of the political class um, which Trump was able to mobilize very well um, you know, that obviously, I think, has disappeared from Trump's um, proposal, largely speaking, although he still has, um, you know, his enemies in, in the deep state. So he's able to um, at least signal against whatever the FBI and the CIA um, insofar as they're, um, you know, opposed to his own personal liberty. <laughs> so th- there's that. Um, but I, I wonder whether, you know, the argument here then is that that's, that's now disappeared, that there was a, this challenge. Um, people got exhausted. Uh, it didn't really lead anywhere. Um, and the deflation that comes from the lack of realization of aims, whether that's of left populism or of right populism, that there's a disengagement. And I'm kind of working on this idea 
myself about a way that this um, this sort of yeah this sort of disengagement is happening, both in a kind of private sense, right? Which I think we've been talking about of you know just looking at you family or religion or you know a hobby or whatever um but also kind of a political way that this um a political form that disengagement takes of a politics of withdrawal so like something like anti-work um on the left um a lot of kind of green ideas particularly insofar as they refer to the fantasy of a village of the fantasy of village life somehow. Um, and you know, the kind of low emission zones in Europe in particular of like turning inner cities and making the 15 minute city, which is a kind of technocratic, um, kind of conception of, of how to manage urban space. Uh, like that itself is, is a way of kind of trying to create a sense of quiet or a sense of, um, of a more stable life away from the kind of craziness. Um, and whether that kind of will, we'll see a lot more kind of political activity in, in those realms. Um, and even, you know, kind of withdrawal from the international sphere, like of, of isolationism um, as a way of kind of stepping back from, from the stage where all this kind of craziness has played out. I also wonder, because a lot of the people that were really engaged in, in, in the era of hyperpolitics, a lot of them were, you know, office workers, uh, younger college kids, things like that. And during the pandemic, uh, a lot of those people were working remotely and also moving all across not only the country, but the world, you know, like uh, what's happened with Mexico City. So you have li- literally uh, people fleeing um, this country and the workplace um, for a sort of withdrawal. And I think those people have a disproportionate impact on hyperpolitics. And and I'm wondering if those people are just going to kind of stay in this other, you know, uh, this other realm and, and, and will be physically uh, separated from all of the bullshit. Yeah, no, that, I think that's, that's an interesting observation. I think there's a lot of, um, yeah, people trying to find an exit, I guess, in a way. And that's part of, that's part of it. You know, you've got your libertarian exit, which is like, you know, seasteading at its most extreme um, extent, but also, yeah, people going off and, uh, yeah, I mean, the kind of examples that you give. Um, Just to maybe round this out, because I I think the United States and I think particularly Europe, although maybe you could argue the other way around, that ordinary citizens are faced with an accelerated social decline. I think it's very evident everywhere now in a way that it didn't used to be that, you know, it's people who were paying attention um, or people in particularly affected areas uh, who were aware of it. And now it seems to be kind of general. Um, And you can interpret that in your own way, left, right, or kind of non-politically aligned um, in in terms of attributing causes. But I think it's it's increasingly a shared reality. Um, And all this talk about, you know, hyperpolitics and particularly the type of content, the type of the things that our people are debating is so kind of tangential to to all of that, um, to people's jobs, to the urban environment, to homelessness, drug addiction, etc., that that it, it seems like, you know, a kind of um, a real kind of pathological sort of craziness that kind of happens along the surface while everything is crumbling underneath. Um not to be too kind of grand about it, but that's basically, um, you know, if, if I'm trying to characterize the 
the 2020s, the decade after the populist decade, after the decade of anti-politics, I would kind of just say, yeah, it's accelerated decline, but with a lot of frustrated craziness, kind of making it weirder and itself more frustrating than than it should be. Yeah, I think it's uh, even in the last year, it's become more noticeable. You see, I was in the doctor's office recently, and they had a, a sign about, uh, you know, like a code of behavior and. Um, yeah, you're seeing that you're seeing that everywhere where people are behaving badly. And I think that the social decline accelerated during COVID. And, you know, they talk about during that that period of lockdown that we advanced towards a online first society by five years. Right. And I think that's true. I think that, um, you know, the 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 online world, the social media world used to be a reflection of the real world. And I think that it's becoming inverse over the last couple of years. And I think that the way we treat each other in face-to-face often reflects the way that online works, where you're angry, you're yelling, um, you don't uh, care about the person next to you. So I think that we can't underestimate the role that technology plays in this, in the social decline. Yeah, I think that's um, that's definitely worth observing. Increasingly, online has kind of exploded onto the real world, perhaps even more so than the real world is increasingly funneled to online. Um, anyway, that's maybe something that uh, to, to be explored more in the future. But anyway, cheers, Ryan. Um, I'll uh, give a shout out again to, to the article, um, America's New Politics of Nothing, um, which came out on Compact uh well, a week ago if, by the time you, listener, are listening to this. Um, so do check that out. And Ryan, if you, have a, if you want to give a shout out to any um, other things that people should uh, look out for or where to follow you, this is a good time to do so. Yes, I am at Ryan Zickraff on Twitter, and you can find my work at Jacobin, Compact, and Atlanta Civic Circle. I guess the thing is, is that like, you know, if you feel like there's this growing bubbling threat um, of, of kind of opposition against the establishment, although it might be coming from different places, you think, okay, there's something to work with there politically. Um, and if there isn't, then then it then I think the critique becomes kind of a different one. Well, and also, I don't think you can underestimate the crying wolf factor. And I think I mentioned this in my piece that um, you had... Republicans say that communism was coming. You had Democrats saying fascism was coming. And then we experienced the Trump presidency and we are experiencing the Biden presidency and none of those things really happened and it didn't even seem close to happening. And I know that what happened January 6th and some of, you know, Trump's thing would prove that it was serious. And I think it's medium serious, but part of the disengagement is that, that people are hyperventilating for years about the coming disasters and people's day-to-day lives were pretty uh, much the same except for during COVID. And then, you know, now during some, the, the, the crime wave and the social unrest. Right. The, the moment where things really did radically change was the one moment where actually this was meant to be the thing that everyone must do. Um, and the moment that, you know, like there was some kind of unity and uh, of purpose around this central goal. So, yeah, ironically, it's not the moment where like the other side is suddenly going to take over that provides a 
a threat or disruption of the normal way that you know society to be but it's actually precisely the opposite so yeah i think that i think that's and i think we still haven't you know i I don't want to talk about covid because i fucking hate thinking about the pandemic and what the whole experience was there but i think like we haven't really got to grips with um how that how much that's changed society and and we don't want to think about it either you know oh dude i uh so the, the thing that I'm reporting on for Atlanta Civic Circle right now is there's school board elections and I'm, I'm deep diving. I have seven weeks to write about school boards and studying the schools here. I am amazed at how wrecked they are, how terrible they are, but everybody is pretending everything's fine. But you have kids who are, you know, in sixth grade that can barely read or do a simple yeah. addition, have no attention span, mental health issues, you know, uh, uh, attempted suicide rates. And then, you know, a lot of kids are just dropping out. Like uh, in Atlanta, 37% of kids are like chronic, chronically absent, which means they miss like, you know, a, a big amount, big chunk of the school days. 4% are homeless. 4% of Atlanta wow. public school yeah kids are homeless and there's this just growing disaster that we're sort of you know because the attention the national media is focused on like i don't know what Zelensky does or uh these culture war battles i think that we are soon going to come face to face with some of these issues and it's going to be bad (laughs) 